right, hey folks, welcome to um, Equip for uh, this fall semester. We're talking about Bible intake. Um, I've tried to give you guys watching with us online, whether you're watching live or following this up sometime during the week, uh, just a little bit of what we've talked about in here. So we've, we've talked, because uh, we're giving people 15 minutes to ask questions beforehand. And we've talked about uh, Philippians 2 and about what and when did the Son uh, lay down when he humbled himself, not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Um, and so we talked about rights and privileges of the Godhead that the Son laid down uh, at his incarnation, um, fully taking them back up now uh, as our risen Savior. Uh, we talked about um, the Pope's declaration today that uh, civil unions between uh, homosexuals should be embraced by the church, not fully endorsing homosexual marriage. Um, but um, get close. And um, yeah, those were really our two uh, topics. Both those took me a little bit of time. So that's what we've been doing. We hope you've had a good day wherever you are online and for those in the room. I do want to open us in prayer before we get started. Father, thank you for our opportunity that we can meet together tonight, encourage one another, talk about your word as we transition now from thinking about the genres of the Old Testament to thinking about genres of the New Testament I pray, God, that you would um, help us to become better students of your word, uh, that you would guard us, uh, God, from reading what is not there, uh, but from taking serious the pursuit of finding meaning uh, in the one place where we know you have spoken to us, and that is your scripture. So, God, would you enlighten our eyes today as we talk, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we do transition tonight from talking about the Old Testament to the New Testament. And uh, the last uh, couple of weeks, we've been talking about genres of the Old Testament. I think I'm going to get to go a little slower today. I've intentionally prepared less. We'll see how that works. That doesn't normally work out very well, but we'll see how it works. Because I know last week, uh, I didn't get to get, spend quite as much time talking about the Old Testament prophets as, as I would like to. I did recommend that book, uh, How to Read and Understand, uh, the Prophets by Peter Gentry. It's an approachable book. You could buy that if you're really interested in that subject. Um, it would be some significant study for you, but I think it would be uh, a good book. So I'm not, I'm not going to pick up, I'm not going to cover anything else about the Prophets because I do want to go ahead and transition to the, the New Testament today. But we talked about both the Prophets and the Psalms and the wisdom literature. Um, Psalms and wisdom literature really being what we go to for uh, encouragement. And, and so often we go to the Psalms, we go to the Proverbs uh, when we're down, when we need instruction, uh, when we need, um, we need some kind of encouragement. There are so many things there in that middle section of uh, the New Test of the Old Testament uh, between really the majority narrative, the majority prophecy is, is, is those, those gold mines of, of uh, wisdom and, and the Psalter and, and worship unto God. And so I encourage you, hope you, you spent some time reading in that in the last week. That, and it's not something that I've encouraged, but I know some of you have been doing because you've been talking to me about doing it. Uh, but I would encourage you, whatever we talk about, it would be great for you to go ahead and put it into practice maybe for the next week after we talk about uh, the New Testament narratives today. Maybe, maybe study some of them and put some of these principles into practice as I believe they would help you because um, it's one thing to learn how to do something. It's a whole other thing to practice that thing that you learn. And the more that you practice something, uh, the, more, the better you get at 
uh, get at doing it. So we're going to transition now to two weeks of talking about genres from the New Testament. Really, we're going to be looking this this evening at the first five books of uh, the New Testament, the four Gospels and the book of Acts, and thinking about how to subdivide that so we know uh, how to approach the texts that we are uh, reading and how we should read them, how we should think about them, because um, all of the Bible is the Bible. I think this is an important point to say this. From Genesis to Revelation, it is the inspired word of God. It is the scripture. It is the, it is the word of God to us. All of it is, as, um, um, as Paul would later say, is profitable, is useful, uh, for preaching, teaching, correction, right? Like this, this is what we do. It is all the two, the double-edged sword. But um, there is one section of it that specifically tells us the story of our Savior. Um, four books dedicated to um, the life, ministry, and teaching of uh, the God-man Jesus. And I think that is... Uh, it's very important um, that we know how to read and understand that. I do push back against, um, and this is not to insult your Bible if you have one, Um, I do push back some against the idea of putting the words of Jesus in red in Bibles. Um, The history behind that, just quickly, the reason people put words of Jesus in red, because there was a movement uh, in the 1900s to exalt the words of Jesus over the rest of the Bible. And a subtle way of doing that is to make them a different color. Now, if you have red letters in your Bible, don't go throw it out. It's a perfectly fine Bible. Just don't pay more attention to the red ones than you do the black ones, all right? It's all the word of God. And we don't exalt the words of Jesus over the words of Paul. But we do exalt the life of Jesus over the life of anyone else. And, And we recognize that all of the scriptures is leading us to Jesus and um, those written after his life are pointing us back to and talking about how we then live new lives in Christ. And so we're going to talk today about those gospels as well as the book of Acts, um, because that is the New Testament narrative. So just like we started in the Old Testament with the narrative text, prose, with that written to us in story form, uh, that's where we start with uh, the New Testament as well. And it, it's really kind of divided in it similarly. So in the Old Testament, uh, we see a lot of narrative early. The, the, new, the Old Testament is narrative heavy in the beginning. And the same is true uh, in, in the New Testament. It's very heavy uh, narrative. Uh, and we're going to think about how to subdivide that narrative. But New Testament narratives tell us about true events that took place during the life and ministry of Jesus, as well as the early church written for a specific purpose. And all of that is important, that these are true events. And we talked about Old Testament narrative being true events and that, that that's important for our understanding uh, of, um, of the meaning of the text. And that is equally so in the New Testament, that these things all happened. That what Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, and John, Luke writing both Luke and the, God, and the, the Acts of the Apostles in the fifth book of the New Testament... Um, all of these accounts are true accounts. That this isn't fairy tale. I know I, I use that term in the, talking about the Old Testament, uh, but there are those that would want to say the same thing to be true about 
the New Testament, there was something um, in the 1900s known as the, the Jesus Seminar, and it was primarily liberal scholars from, um, theologically liberal scholars from um, all over. They got together to try to determine what parts of the gospel were true, particularly what sayings of Jesus were true and what weren't. And they voted with rocks. They had, they had different color rocks. And if you thought it was true, you put a certain color rock in the bag. Um, and really what they landed on was, in their minds, that most of this has, was, was fabricated. Um, and this is highly influenced by naturalism and humanism uh, that, that were popularized during the Enlightenment and during uh, the rise of classical liberalism. Uh, and what we would say is, no, we, we don't get to cut any of this out, that anything the Bible tells us Jesus said, anything the Bible tells us Jesus did actually happened, but all four of these books, all five of these books and four of these authors uh, wrote with specific purpose in mind. They wrote intentionally. There is intentionality in each of these books. And to just take them as historical accounts, I hope you see what I'm doing here, to take them just as historical accounts, which they are, but to only consider them as historical accounts will often miss the, per- the point. It'll often miss the meaning because we fail to ask the second question, which is, okay, if this is a historical account um, and there was lots that you know, Jesus lived for 30-something years, um, he did ministry for around three years, um, the, why, why just these stories? If the end of John is true, which I believe that it is, even though he speaks in hyperbole, right? That if we were to, um, write everything that happened to Jesus, it would fill all the books in the world, right? If that's true, why these stories? Why, why these teachings? Why these sermons? Why these parables and not the rest? Well, that is a combination of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the life of the author, but also the author himself writing, to, writing from a perspective to people with a perspective. And so we want to think about these both as historical accounts, which they are, true words of God, uh, but also uh, with a specific intention and in each one of them uh, somewhat unique. Now, when we, want, when we think about the New Testament, um, when we think about the narrative of the New Testament, really spanning Matthew uh, through Acts, we need to subdivide it uh, a little bit, uh, not, into, not into a whole lot of categories. I'm only going to have three, even though there are probably some, some smaller categories. You could probably ask about certain things, and we would say, yeah, that's a little different. But again, this is kind of survey work. So we're going to think of three major categories. Um, the first one actually just being the narrative event. That those portions of Scripture in the first five books of the New Testament that are just telling us a story. It's not Jesus. So the others are going to be when Jesus teaches or preaches or someone else teaches or preaches because that happens in Acts. Or the third one we're going to consider is when Jesus tells parables. And we're going to spend a good bit of time on, on parables um, because they, they have a really, we have, we really need to have a, they really stand out as unique and we need to have a, a, a fresh mind as we, as we think about them. But the first that I want to talk about is, is really just when, when the authors of these books, um, and when we're talking about, uh, the authors of the, uh, the four gospels, 
um, they're, they're often spoken of differently than the authors of the rest of the scriptures. Uh, they're often called the evangelists because they're the ones telling us the good news of Jesus, right? So the, the authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, are the evangelists telling us the, uh, the, the good news. And um, some of what they tell us are events that took place. Uh, so Luke begins his gospel um, with the pronouncement of the birth of John the Baptist, the pronouncement of the birth of, uh, of Jesus. So this happens technically before the, the life of Jesus with at least the main characters being um, the, the people uh, in the generation ahead of he and his cousin John. Um, and and these, are, these are narrative events, right? The, these things are being told to us, but they're being told uh, with a specific reason. Um, uh, John uh, introduces narratives in very different ways, thinking uh, in more of a historical uh, Hebrew author way of, of kind of climbing a spiral staircase. Uh, Mark seeks to be very succinct with the stories. Um, uh, some uh, try to be more chronological in nature, but, but they're all telling us in, often, in many cases uh, similar, same events. And how should we then read these events that take place um, either before, during, or after the life of Jesus. So if we're just thinking about the Gospels for a minute, take Acts out of it, except for maybe the first chapter of Acts, which does include some narrative account of the life of Jesus. Um, but if we're primarily just thinking about the four Gospels and we're going to approach them and think, how do we read them? We really want to think in two directions uh, as as the context, because you remember one of our one of our basic principles of hermeneutics is context is king, right? Well, how do you determine context of, uh, of a story, an event, a true event taking place recorded for us uh, within the New Testament? I think there's two perspectives that help us here. One perspective is, is a horizontal perspective, meaning that if we were to line Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John up against one another, and see the similarities and see the differences, when we consider a story, when we consider an event that's recorded in one place that is or is not considered in another, that inclusion or exclusion in another gospel or the minor differences um, within the details that are, that are told in one and told in another can help us to see uh, why that author is using that story or why that evangelist is using that story in that specific way and in that specific place. So we would ask these kind of questions. Uh, what are the similarities between, um, uh, between you know, Matthew's account of uh, this story and, and Luke's account of this story? So if you take, for instance, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000 occurs in all four Gospels. Um, there, there aren't a lot of uh, events outside of the crucifixion uh, that occur in all four Gospels, but the feeding of the 5,000 does occur in all four Gospels. Uh, but if we go back to the original language, do you know how many actual words are contained in all four stories? That The same word shows up in all four? Only eight words. There are only eight words in those four stories that show up in all four places, right? Um, 
And those, those stories range anywhere from about 140 to almost 200 words in, in length. And, but why? Why did, why did Matthew include certain things that Luke didn't include? Why did Luke tell us certain things that, that John didn't include? Why is Mark's the shortest? And actually, in that case, in most cases, Mark's is the shortest. In that case, it's, it's not. Mark tells us more. Well, why? And as we ask those questions, as we start to read some of these things, we start to ask those questions, we, we get some specific answers that may help us really understand, okay, this is what Luke is focusing on. And we see Luke give these details every time when Matthew decides to leave them out. Or we see, we see John do this in a, in a unique way that what are known as the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't do. And so that makes it unique to John. Well, why does... Why does John do that? So that's that horizontal approach. But we also want to think, we also want to think vertically. We want to look at, and I think this is the work that you'll most often do when you're reading. And again, I'm, I'm encouraging you to read one book of the Bible at a time, read it from beginning to end, approach it slowly, study it. Uh, think you'll, you'll be able to, to locate patterns. You'll be able to locate primary teachings and themes that rise up in every book of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And that's true uh, about uh, about the four narrative stories and the are the five narrative uh, books and the four gospel accounts in the New Testament, uh, but you'll you'll begin to ask these kind of questions like why why is this story not only why did this um, uh, why did this author uh, pick this story out of all the ones that he could have told why did he pick this story but why did he place this story here. So we start, start thinking about selection, right? Why did the author use this story? We start thinking about arrangement of the stories. Why, why were they placed in the way that they were placed? Um, if you were here when I was preaching through the uh, book of Luke, um, if you're new, I preached through the book of Luke. I finished that um, last spring, and it was the longest sermon series that I've done in my, in my uh, pastorate here, we were in Luke for about two and a half years. Um, and uh, I learned so much. I've never preached all the way through a gospel like that in that slow pace. And I, I learned a lot preaching it that way. I won't always preach. The next gospel I preach, I'll preach much quicker just to kind of do some, uh, some differences and, and, and uh, show how some of these events all kind of group together. But one of the things that we noticed, and I, and I would come back to regularly if you were here during that, when we got into the section of um, the middle section of Luke, after um, Jesus uh, is born, right? You have that narrative account, but then you have his early Galilean ministry, and then you have his Jerusalem ministry. Well, in between that, Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. I think that was in Luke 9. Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, and every couple of chapters, we get reminded that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, but he's not really yet, he's not, I mean, it wouldn't have taken him that long. And Luke wasn't telling us in, in those chapters, and it's like 10, nine, 10 chapters uh, that Jesus, from when Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem to when he finally gets there, um, none of it's in chronological order. If you look at the other gospels, Luke takes them out of order. But he does so intentionally, and he groups them together in these different uh, events that lead to different teachings. Well, if all you're doing is turning to one little passage of Luke, which we're going to do here in a little bit, you turn to one little passage of Luke because you're really interested in reading about the prodigal son, right? And so you, read, you, you turn to that and you read it, 
um, you may learn something from it, but you're going to miss all of the vertical context that you would have seen had you been reading the gospel of Luke all the way up until that point, asking those questions about why, why now? Why, did, why is he telling us this? And why is he telling us this now? And what does this have to do with the other things that are surrounding it? Because there's great intentionality that we see, not only in the selection of accounts that are being told to us uh, in uh, the Gospels, but also in their placement. So selection's important, but arrangement's also important. Uh, and it's, it's important in Luke. It's important in all four of them. It's important in Luke, particularly in that middle section. Because Luke gets very thematic in that middle section. But there's no place that it's more important than in John. Because John does very, John cares almost none about chronology. Until you get to the very end, right? John doesn't care at all about chronology. Chronology was not important to John at all. John was, John is almost completely thematic. And so he would take these, he takes these, um, these accounts from the life of Jesus, some that the synoptic gospels don't give us, and, and he, uh, he walks up this spiral staircase, uh, kind of always coming back to um, what, what John always comes back to is the, the different feasts that Jesus would go to in Jerusalem. And, and you have these teachings and it'll come back to the feast. You have these teachings and it'll come back to the feast. You have these events that'll come back to the feast. And, and none of these things were ever intended in John's mind to be an, in order chronologically. They were in order thematically. He was, he was, he's making a point as he progresses through his book. But if you just turn to one of those events and just read that event, you don't see, you, you don't ever walk up the staircase, right? So we start at the beginning and we start asking, okay, why this story? But not only why this story, why this story now? Then when we think back to that horizontal view, we ask this, okay, not only why did they do this and why did they do this now? But what is it about this one little difference that we see in Luke that we didn't see in Mark or that we see in Matthew that we didn't see in John? Why is this difference? This is called adaptation. Does the author adapt the event? Does he, so what some of the, again, they're not changing truth, but what they'll do is they'll, where one gospel writer will use a telescope, another one will use a microscope. They'll say, why? Why, did that, why does this author give me all of these details when the other guy just happened to mention that Jesus went to that place or happened to mention that Jesus healed some people there, but yet this author gives us all of this, all of this detail? Well, it's important for us. So we see the selection, arrangement, and the adaptation, this inclusion or exclusion of details, and all of that speaks to the story that that evangelist is telling to his specific audience because they are writing to specific audiences. And so as we see, as we um, begin to see what they're doing, we can start seeing who their audiences are. So it becomes very clear very quickly in the gospel of Luke, for instance, that this was written for a Gentile mind. It becomes very clear very quickly that Matthew was written for a Jewish mind can become very clear that Mark is written to a persecuted people. Just by seeing the things that get highlighted, what gets included, what doesn't get included, and the order in which they do it, we start to see who these audiences were and then why we start answering some of the bigger questions of why. 
But as you're reading these narrative accounts, and again, we're not talking about sermons yet. We're not talking about uh, parables. We're just talking about Jesus going to certain places, doing certain things. Many of these contain miracles, uh, healing events, right? Why does Jesus do, why why do these evangelists record Jesus doing these things? They are always intended, these stories are always intended to draw one into believing what Jesus is going to teach. I think if there's anything that I said repetitively more during our series in Luke than anything else, it was this. The miracles of Jesus validate the teaching ministry of Jesus. And Luke intentionally does this. Luke will take a miracle and then a teaching. And a miracle and then a teaching. Why? Because he's like, you should listen to him. He can walk on water, right? You should listen to him. He can feed 5,000 people from just a handful of supplies, right? You, you should listen to him. He can calm the storm. So the, the, these stories are intended to draw one into belief. So that's why we see them. That's why they didn't just write, um, they didn't just write the gospels like we see um, more contemporary things being written uh, during Jesus' day. For instance, if, if the gospel writers had continued with uh, in the same pattern of writing that we saw at the end of the Old Testament, which is about a 400-year period, but if, if, if that's the case, most of what we see at the end of the Old Testament is some really clear narrative account, um, right, in, in, in Ezra and Nehemiah, but then some, some really prophetic, like, oracle-type stuff with, with just some teaching in blocks, right? And so you could argue that that's, that's what we need. We need one book that just tells us the story, right? Jesus was born here, he went here, he went here, he does this, he's crucified and died, and then we need another that's like the book of Amos, right? These, these just... Oracle account. It's just kind of lengthy. We get the Sermon on the Mount. We get the Sermon on the Plain. We get the Olivet Discourse. But that's not what the that's not what the gospel authors do for us. What the gospel authors do is they interweave these things together, because the narrative, the events that took place, happen for a reason. They happen to validate that what Jesus is saying is truth. That what he's saying to be true about himself is true. They're intended to draw you in to believe that this guy can do these things. And because he can do these things, we should believe him, right? And this is the, what we see so often validated after the miracles of Jesus is people would believe because of what he did. Now, just quickly, we want to think about the, the book of Acts, uh, but we're going to come back to the gospels, but just quickly thinking about the narratives in the book of Acts, because the book of Luke, uh, even though in order of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John Acts, uh, Luke and Acts really go together. They're, they're volume one and volume two of a complete set. And they really uh, pick up right where the other uh, leaves off. And it's written in the same style because it's written by the same guy. Uh, and so we, we want to approach them, the narratives uh, in the same way. Uh, but we would, ask, we would ask these kind of questions when we're getting into the narrative of Acts. Uh, why, did, why did Luke need to write something else? I think that's the most important question you can ask. Mark didn't write anything else. Matthew didn't write anything else. Uh, John wrote some stuff, but he wrote specifically to the churches. And then he writes about, um, uh, you know, persecution into the second coming of 
second coming of Christ. But why does Luke write to this guy, this Gentile guy named Theophilus, why does he write to him a second time to, to kind of update him, this, this volume two? Why does he provide that? Well, he provides it to show that it didn't end with Jesus, that there's this continue, there's this spread of the gospel with the, with the turning event being Pentecost, right? That, that the Holy Spirit comes and so Jesus has ascended, but now God has come again in the Holy Spirit. Now he indwells us, and now we then see this great spread. So we have this great importance of Pentecost and the mission of the church. So you're reading the stories of Acts, not necessarily the sermons of Acts, even though they're, they're also going to do this, but the stories of Acts. There's just this really basic question is, how is this building on the coming of the Holy Spirit and the spread of the gospel, the mission of the church. Like, how is that, how, how is what Luke is telling me here building out that story? Those stories are not intended to be normative for the church, uh, meaning we shouldn't necessarily go to Acts. I should say like this, they're not necessarily intended to be normative for the church, meaning we don't have to go to the book of Acts and do things exactly the way that we see them being done in those narrative accounts. Um, but we can learn from what they were doing. We can draw some basic principles from what they were doing. But most importantly, they're telling us about the early church uh, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the early church and the mission of the early church. So, Luke, so we ought to just see Acts as like the second volume of Luke continuing that story on uh, for us. All right. So that's when we're reading things like miracle accounts or we're reading things in, in the book of Acts about what Paul's doing or what the you know, Jerusalem council are doing or what the apostles are doing in Jerusalem. Or we're reading those, recognizing that these are true events written to a specific audience with a specific purpose, um, and, but they're, they're drawing us into belief in Jesus in the gospels and they're drawing us into the mission uh, of um, the, uh, the, Holy, the indwelling Holy Spirit and uh, the mission of the church. But all of these books also contain teachings or sermons. I'm just going to call them sermons, although some of them are just snippets of sermons. Um, some of them are snippets, things Jesus would have said in the synagogues uh, when he was, because we're told that Jesus in Galilee particularly traveled around and preached in all of the synagogues. I thought one of the most unique things we got to see uh, a year and a half ago when some of us went to Israel uh, was we went to uh, an excavation of the town of Magdala, um, which is where Mary Magdalene uh, would have been from. And it's right on the Sea of Galilee, and it's one of the, it's one of the best excavations in, in Galilee. Um, it is the best excavation of a first century synagogue. I mean, it's, I mean they, it's there. I mean, you can see it. This is first century synagogue. We know it's first century synagogue because of its construction, the way that it's pointing. And here's what we know, even though the city of Magdala, the little town, never mentioned anywhere other than Mary Magdalene being from there, um, we stood there in that place. And I told the people with us, like, we can with certainty say Jesus would have sat right here. It's not a big place. We can, Jesus would have sat right here and would have taught because the Bible tells us he traveled to all these synagogues and teaching. Teaching was a big part of what Jesus did. Um, sometimes he taught outside, things like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. Um, sometimes it was small groups of people, um, just the disciples. Sometimes it was whosoever will come like those outdoor events or even teaching within the synagogues. And we, and, um, so there, there are certain 
ways that we want to read those accounts, those sermons, those teachings. Uh, and very few of them are intended to be exhaustive, meaning we have, we have maybe only a couple of things like the, uh, like the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best example of what would have been the majority of what Jesus would have said, but all of the gospel authors are, were selective and, and pulling encounters and teachings and, and, and pieces of sermons together. And so we're going to ask uh, maybe some different questions, but we're reading sermons, teachings of Jesus in the gospel, uh, in the gospels. There's one thing that we should always keep in mind. Um, I remember I told you last week that when you're reading the prophets of the Old Testament, um, you, you always keep the covenant in mind, that it is always speaking to the covenant because the prophets were the keepers of the covenant, right? They were the covenant enforcers of, of the Old Testament. And if you're reading it outside of the covenant, you're probably reading it wrong. When we get to the New Testament, when we get to the teachings of Jesus, um, here's what you have to keep in mind. In Matthew 4, 17, tells us that Jesus, when Jesus began his ministry, that he went about everywhere preaching this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that is, you could say, a sermon title, if you would like, for all of the preaching ministry of Jesus. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What Jesus is, what we, how we need to read the, the teachings and preachings of Jesus in the Gospels is through the lens of is through the lens of the kingdom of God. That this is what Jesus was ushering in. He's doing one of two things in these teachings. He's either pronouncing the coming of the kingdom, which I'm going to talk a little bit about, or he's um, pronoun- or he's teaching about the ethics of his kingdom. But this is, this is what Jesus is talking. He's either talking about the kingdom having come or coming, or he's talking about how we're going to live as a part of the kingdom. So let's just think about that first one for a moment. The pronouncement of the coming kingdom. Um, I, I, don't have, I don't have a great deal of time uh, to, to get into this, but I want to go back to what we talked about last week just briefly. Last week, I talked about the the foretelling of the prophets and that, that the prophets were, were, it was as if the prophets were looking at two mountains, right? In directly in line with one another. And they, they and so if they're painting this two dimensional picture, right? Even if one mountain's bigger than the other, really this thing that they're painting is, is this, is this one big mountain, one right in front of the other, Right? When Jesus comes and starts to teach, we, we then kind of turn that painting and we get this two-dimensional view. But instead of, instead of looking at it from the front, we're now looking at it from the side. And we can see the rise and fall of both mountains. And what's being described here in this, in this right, maybe poor illustration is what, what's known as inaugurated eschatology that Jesus is bringing in the kingdom and that the kingdom is both now, meaning it was happening there in his midst, and it was not yet. Now, we're familiar with that word inaugurated through our political uh, word for inauguration, right? The inauguration of, of a president. 
the inauguration of the president, uh, which happens every four years in January, right, is, is when we uh, recognize that we, we either have a new president or a, the sitting president has a, has a second term, and it's the beginning, right? So inaugurated eschatology is the beginning of something that, that is also not yet fully, and the, the word we use is consummated. It, it started, but it's not fully there, right? We've, we've said the vows, but we hadn't had the, we hadn't had the wedding night, right? And these are, the, these are the two mountains of the kingdom that Jesus brings. And sometimes Jesus talks about the now, and sometimes he talks about the not yet when he's talking about the ushering in uh, of the kingdom, when he's pronouncing the coming kingdom. So Jesus would sometimes be talking about the kingdom of heaven is right now. It's in your midst. He's the one bringing it in your midst. And sometimes he's talking about the second coming, which is when, when we'll have the consummation of the kingdom, when, when Jesus will rule and reign here on, on earth. And, and he's kind of giving us both of those pictures. So when we're thinking about teachings of Jesus, this is the question we have to ask. Is Jesus talking about something that was happening then? Or was Jesus talking about something that wasn't yet happening? Or was Jesus talking about how we take part in his kingdom? So still there under the pronouncement of this coming kingdom, this now, not yet, Jesus gives us pictures of it, but he also talks about how we get to participate in it. So if we go back to Matthew four seventeen, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand is uh, the pronouncement of the coming kingdom. Repent is our participation in it. So often the teachings of Jesus would be concerned not only with the inauguration of the kingdom, but how believers would take part in it, that we would turn from our sin in faith to be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. So he would give us both a view of what the kingdom of heaven is like, but also tell us how we can participate in it. So you have this pronouncement of the kingdom and our participation in it, but then you also have Jesus then describing what the kingdom is like from a earthly perspective. This is known as the ethics of the kingdom. Uh, Primarily, this is what we see in the Sermon on the Mount. So to think about the Sermon on the Mount um, through any lens other than a kingdom lens is to think about it wrong. Jesus is, because if you ever read the Sermon on the Mount and you're like, wow, that's both really good, but almost seems impossible, right? Like Jesus is painting this kingdom ethic for us that, that is really high and lofty. It is certainly one that, that people of faith should strive to live for, but it is also one that people of faith recognize that in our sin, we don't yet fully live in, but one day will, right? So even this kingdom ethic is both now and not Yet. So when we read teachings and sermons of Jesus uh, contained there in the gospel accounts, we're looking at how he is describing the kingdom of heaven for us, how we enter the kingdom of heaven, when we take part in the kingdom of heaven, but also how that kingdom influences how we then live as a member of that kingdom. That, that, there will, that our lives will be changed, that things will actually be flipped upside down, which is why I think the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. And you read the Beatitudes and you're like, that, that, that doesn't seem rational to, right, that the meek would inherit the earth, that, 
that peacemakers would be blessed. That, that these things don't seem, they seem opposite to the world's way of thinking. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's painting for us this picture of, of opposite, right? That, that to live in the kingdom of God is to live opposite of the kingdom of this world. So we always want, and, and these, these sermons are going to be different. They're, you may have to look and, and ask some good questions about, is this the, is this the inauguration of the kingdom? Is this, he's speaking about the second coming and the consummation of the kingdom. Is he talking about our entrance into the kingdom? Is he talking about how we live as a part of the now, not yet we're, we're in the kingdom, but we're not fully realized in it. You have to ask some of those good questions, but it's really going to help you in your understanding of uh, knowing what Jesus, why Jesus is teaching the way that he is teaching. All of it going back to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, when we get to that second volume of Luke, right? And we get to the sermons contained in Luke, uh, it's not kingdom focused because uh, remember Matthew four seventeen 17 uh, really kind of gives us uh, that sermon title for um, for the gospel sermons, uh, but Pentecost gives us the sermon title for uh, the sermons that are contained in Acts. And the sermons contained in Acts begins with the sermon of Peter on the day of Pentecost. Uh, it continues with sermons like, um, um, I've lost it now. Has that ever happened? Ah, Stephen. Like Stephen's sermon. Uh, right before his martyrdom, you have sermons of Paul later as he is uh, preaching uh, either in Gentile or in uh, Jewish communities in, in the dispersion around the world. Uh, but all of them really are, are justifications for Pentecost, that, that now the gospel is spread to the world, that now the gospel is, is available and the kingdom of heaven is here, right? That that's what Jesus brings in. And now we come into it through faith and repentance. And, and so we read those uh, with, with always with the, um, with the events of early acts in mind that the mission of the church now is to proclaim the gospel. All right, so narratives, sermons, the final... Uh, uh, kind of subgenre that we want to consider here is the parables. And parables, the reason you really want to pull these out is because parables is a place, uh, particularly within the four gospels, that if we're going to get something wrong, it very well may be here. Um, the church has, has historically thought about parables in different ways. The, the pendulum of, of interpreting parables have, have swung from highly allegorical. As we saw, we talked about allegory in the Old Testament, some of the dangers of, of, of allegory in the Old Testament. And that pendulum swings uh, to where there's no allegory whatsoever. And it's just a, it's just a morality tale. And nobody represents anything. And all we ought to be looking for is this one little nugget of truth. Um, and and that, that's what we ought to cling to. But the truth is probably somewhere in the middle of those two things. That if there's one place that in, in Scripture outside of apocalyptic literature, which we're going to consider next week, um, that we do get to play around a little bit with allegory. Meaning certain things mean something. Right? And, and, and they represent something. That's what an allegory is, is where everything kind of represents something. Um, the parables is that place. But to overdo it 
which the early church fathers, those, uh, those that lived third, fourth century, they allegorized everything in scripture. Uh, they allegorized everything in the Old Testament. They allegorized the miracles of Jesus. They allegorized the parables of Jesus. And I mean, to the point where, um, like in the, the, uh, one of the famous examples of this is um, Augustine's allegory of um, the, um, the Good Samaritan. And when I say everything in the story of the Good Samaritan had a meaning to Augustine, I mean everything, like the fact that the moon is mentioned. I mean, like every little thing represents something. Well, that's, that's way overdoing it, right? But they, they do probably mean, mean something. They're, there's something for us to, to learn. So far too often they're, they're highly allegorized and we don't want to do that where everything means something. But to remove all allegorical elements from it is probably also going too far. There's probably a middle ground uh, where we want to think from the perspective of the main character. And here, we do need to see a main character uh, in, in its truest sense because the parables are narrative fiction. They are not true. So the, 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 the um, parable of the Good Samaritan is not a true event. There was not really a guy uh, who was mugged on his way to Jerusalem, even though mugging on the way to Jerusalem, or even though mugging in that day were, was somewhat commonplace. Um, there were not uh, a priest and a scribe who passed by and didn't offer to help, even though that was likely what they wouldn't have done. Uh, and there was not a good Samaritan uh, who happened by and helps the guy and brings him to an inn, pays for him to, um, pays for his care and for his food and lodging. Uh, while he goes about his business. That story did not happen. But it doesn't need to happen for the point to be made. Jesus' point is not the story. His point is that the religious elite of the day uh, were not very good at caring for people. And the clearest way he could make that point is to take the most objectionable person in their minds, which would have been a Samaritan, and say, look, this person responds in a more godly way uh, in this case than you do, right? That's the point. Um, and, and so we, we want to think of it. These are narrative fictions with a, with a clear point, uh, sometimes with people in the stories representing things. Now you say, well, how do I know if these people are supposed to represent something or not? Well, the easiest way to know, the easiest ones to get this right all right, are the ones where Jesus tells us what they mean, all right? And there are some where Jesus does tell us what they mean. So the um, parable of the sower, right? You remember the parable of the sower? Where, where the, the sower throws out seed and some of it falls on uh, the stone path, doesn't grow. Uh, some of it grows amongst the uh, thorns and some of it does grow. Some of it uh, falls on um, shallow soil. So it grows for a bit, but it, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't take good root, so it dies out. But then some of it falls on good soil, and that, that falls on good soil actually grows, right? And um, Jesus stops the story, and he actually told the story to a lot of people, but Jesus stops the story, and later his disciples come to him, and they're like, hey, Jesus, we got no idea what that was about. How about you tell us? And so Jesus, he tells them. He's like, 
the, the, um, the seed is the gospel, right? And so that means the, the soils are hearts. And sometimes the gospel seed falls on hardened hearts and those aren't believers. Sometimes it falls uh, on soil that seems receptive at first, but bakes away in the sun and, and it doesn't have roots and those aren't believers. Sometimes it falls uh, on soil that also seems to be receptive, but it's choked out by the enemy and choked out by the ways of the world. Those aren't true believers. But when it falls on receptive soil, soil that's prepared by God, right? That's, I think, part of the allegory. It's, it's a heart that's prepared by God to receive the gospel. Then that heart believes and is, and is saved and, and bears fruit. And Jesus, so he kind of makes the point of the allegory for us. So anywhere where Jesus does it, which by the way, if Jesus tells us that's what that parable means, anytime Jesus explains a parable for us, guess what? We don't get to say the parable means something else because Jesus has told us what the parable means. And so we don't get to say that it means anything else. That story can't mean anything else because Jesus has clarified it for us, right? So any place where Jesus has kind of shown us the allegory, um, we get to see it. In other places, it's very likely intended that certain things, particularly main characters, main actors, main events in the parable uh, will have meaning, but Jesus doesn't further explain it to us. So then the context has to explain it to us. And I think a good place for us to see this uh, is in one of the most famous, I've talked about a couple famous parables. I've just tried because this is more survey work. We're trying to stick with more common themes. But one of the more common parables that people know, even people outside of their churches, is the parable of prodigal son, right? This idea of uh, kind of a wayward son um, that, um, that demands his inheritance and, and runs off and, and um, goes to a, for, a foreign land and squanders inheritance, ends up um, caring for pigs, which would be the worst thing that... A, <laughs> would be the worst thing that someone raised in, in an Israelite household could possibly do, right? Which is painting a picture for us. This guy's at the lowest of low in his life. And he says, man, these pigs eat even better than the servants in my father's house. So he runs home and his father sees him right down the road. And his father runs out to him and places a ring on his hand, places his coat on him, sends a servant to kill the fattened calf, right? Because his son is home. And he's celebrating that his son is home. And, you know, we so often tell that story, right, um, or think about that story, and uh, we, we, we think that the intention of that story uh, is to talk about us and how, you know, so often we go wayward, but yet when we go wayward, we return and, and God celebrates uh, that for us. But if we were to actually read that in context, we begin to recognize that that's not really, even though that's a biblical truth, it's not really the whole point of of the story. So if you look in Luke, Luke at, look at Luke 15 with me, there's actually three parables in Luke 15, all of them telling the same story, just from different vantage points. Uh, one of them is a story of a lost um, sheep, right? That um, there's a hundred sheep, um, one gets lost, the shepherd secures the 99, leaves them to go for the one. Uh, there's the story for the woman with the lost coin. There's a woman that had some coins. She loses one and she lights a lamp and sweeps her whole house. And then the next is the lengthiest one and the most common told, the, the story of the prodigal uh, where he has wandered away and the story that I told. And so those stories, those stories are all 
telling the same, they all have the same point, right? That, that the lost is important to God, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, they're all important to God, that God celebrates in, in all three cases, there's celebration, right? The shepherds celebrate, there's a rejoicing because the one's been found. The woman invites her friend back um, to rejoice, because, invites her friends in to celebrate because her coin has been found. The father at the end of the prodigal son invites celebration uh, because the, the uh, prodigal son has, has returned. But all three of those stories are told for a specific group of people. And that specific group of people is actually introduced to us at the beginning of the chapter. Look at the beginning of that chapter. Now, this is verse 1, verse 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. The tax collectors and sinners are the sheep, the coin, and the son. And the Pharisees and the scribes, so if we're going to allegorize, that's who the, the sheep, the coin, and the son represent, the tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Who does he tell the parable to? Not the, not the he doesn't tell the parable to the sheep, the coin, and the prodigal son. He tells the, par- the, the parable to the Pharisees and the scribes who do not show up in the story of the lost sheep. They do not show up in the story of the lost coin, but they do show up in the story of the prodigal son in who? The older brother, right? Now, verse 25, now his older brother was in the field and when he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what, they, what these things mean. And he said to him, your brother is coming and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your commandments, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, whom he had devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed and fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and always mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and he's alive and he was lost and is found. Jesus tells these parables for the benefit of the scribes and the Pharisees so that they would recognize their sin in that they are unwilling to celebrate that sinners are repenting in the ministry of Jesus. The point is not the sheep and the coin and the prodigal. The point is how people who are religious receive those in their repentance. Now, it's not that there isn't something to learn about the nature of God, because in this case, God is the shepherd. God is the woman who loses her coin. God is the father, right? In the allegory of those, God is that, plays that role in the story. But it's told for the benefit of those who are refusing to celebrate with the shepherd for those who are refusing to celebrate with the woman. And he tells those first short little stories to get their minds going because they would say, well, obviously that shepherd would celebrate. Obviously that woman would celebrate. So he hooks them, right? He hooks them in. And they're like, yeah. They fully agreed, by the way, with those first two parables. The, the, The Pharisees and scribes, they were all in. They were like, absolutely, those people should celebrate in those situations. And he tells this third story. 
And you notice there's no resolution there. There's, there, there's no resolution for, for that oldest son. All that we have is the father saying it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and alive and he was lost and was found. We don't know what happens with, uh, uh, with, the, with the older brother. Uh, we do know, though, what happens with most of those scribes and Pharisees. Most of those scribes and Pharisees did not celebrate the fact that tax collectors and sinners were, were coming to Jesus. But see, if we were to just think about it, in from from you know kind of our perspective we put ourselves into to this position but really we the intention is for us to think about it and ask this question are we being the older brother <laughs> are, are we acting like him are we are we pious and self-righteous because that was the intent of the story so when we read parables and that's just an example we ask who's Jesus telling this parable to does Jesus tell us what this parable is about if it doesn't then who's it told for what teachings are surrounding it? What other events are happening? Because it's not just haphazard. The, 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 the gospel authors aren't, aren't just being random in, in their selection of these things. And so, so why, why these parables now in this place? Well, we know because Luke tells us because these people were listening in this case. And in the others, it may be easy to know the meaning because Jesus tells us the meaning. It may be easy to know the context because the, the gospel authors tell us the context. We may have to do a little digging. We have to maybe do a little bit of looking, but um, we'll, we'll find it. And when we find it, that becomes meaning for us. That's where we, we gather meaning. So while there is picture here, go back to, to Luke 15, while there is pictures into the heart of God who celebrates, and we know this from other scripture, right? That, that heaven celebrates when the lost are saved, right? So we know that there is celebration uh, for that lost sheep, that lost coin, that lost brother. The point of the telling of the story is, is to look inside our own hearts and to ask, am I more like a Pharisee? Am I more like this older brother uh, than, than like the younger? Well, that changes the way that we approach the, the meaning of the, of the story then and, and our, application, our application of it. So um, narrative, we, we, ask the, we ask those horizontal questions, those vertical questions. Why is this here? Teaching, we view it through the kingdom uh, in the gospels and through Pentecost in, in Acts and the spread of the early church. And with parables, um, don't over-allegorize it. Don't under-allegorize it. Ask good questions in context and look for that, look for that meaning um, because what the parable meant is what the parable meant. And it's what it still means today. And we don't get to pull it out of that and make it mean, uh, make it mean something that, that it never meant then, just like the rest of Scripture. All right, look at that. I did finish on time today. I talked about everything that I wanted to talk about. I have two minutes left. Do you have a question? We don't normally do questions since we're live online too. But Something about this, question about the Gospels, how we read them, or the book of Acts. No? I'm going to pray and we're going to be done about a minute early. Isn't that awesome? God, thank you um, that, that we, you, did, you didn't just bless us with one account of the life of Jesus, but with four rich and deep stories because there is so much for us to know about who our Savior is, how our Savior lived, what our Savior taught, and what our Savior did for us so that we might take part in your kingdom and that we might go with the gospel as a part of the mission of the church, continuing on what began all those years ago in the book of Acts. 
with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Let us read with wisdom, we pray, these words, applying them to our lives, seeing their meaning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us, those that joined us online. Thank you for being here, those that are in the room. I'll hang out down here if you have a question.